Welcome back to Dirt Talk, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Witt, and uh, today I am very, very, very excited about, about the interview we got going on. We're, we're interviewing Herb Sargent of Sargent Corporation out of Maine. They have, I think, over 400 people currently. They're working in seven-plus states all the way onto the West Coast as well from the East Coast. And Herb and I were just talking. They, they're, they're closing in on their 100th year of business in, in a few years from now. So they have a hundred years of history. They're in a big transitional period. They're doing some remarkable things. So I'm just I'm really excited. And Herb is the uh, president CEO. He's kind of transitioning out of the business over the next few years, handing it off to the next generation. So there's a whole lot to talk about. I'm really excited to have you on, Herb. Hey, thanks, Aaron. I hope I can uh, live up to both the walk up music and the introduction. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm doing my best. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm trying to trying to trying to tee everyone up here. Well, hey, keep, keep it low overhead. Yeah. Yeah. So we were just talking before the podcast here. You're you're kind of a hybrid in 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 a sense that you're third generation, but you're also first generation. Can you can you explain how that's worked out? How that even is? Sure, I'll try to get through that quickly without putting people to sleep here. But so my uh, my grandfather started the business. His name was also Herb. I was named after him. And uh, in 1926, and in the 1970s, my uncle and my dad uh, took over the business and eventually became the owners. And then in the late 80s, they were approached by a company from Paris, France, who was looking for a, a Northeast American holding, a construction company. And uh, so they sold. This is 1988. They sold to a company called Rezel, R-A-Z-E-L. And uh, <clears throat> that went well initially, but Rezel suddenly hit some hard times. They were working on four continents at the time. And the business model changed dramatically. My dad ended up retiring in 89. I left the company in 1991. And then the name of that company was H.E. Sargent. So I left the company in 1991 at 28 years old and started a site work company in Bangor, Maine with my brother, who was still going to school, still going to college. And we called it Sergeant and Sergeant. And we, we worked well for several years, picked up a couple couple of the old time folks from HE Sergeant, really strong, a lot of credibility to them, brought us a lot of immediate credibility in the market. And about 2000, George Thomas and Tim Polster and about five years later, HE Sergeant had gone through a number of various ownerships over the over the years now, it had been 17 years since they've been sold, and we got wind that they they wanted to, to divest of HE Sargent, and so we uh, we were able to pull it together. Uh, we were a relatively small company at the time, about 80 employees, and HE Sargent had about 500. Uh, so it was kind of a it was kind of the you know the guppy swallowing the whale in a way. Yeah. But we were able to pull it off, and uh, if you can believe it or not, my grandfather was still alive at that time. He was 99 years old, and I think he was pleased to see that. So, in that way, I'm third generation, but because I left and started my own business, kind of first generation. I How do you go acquire a company five times the size of yours? And I, I didn't even know <laughs> I didn't know this was possible until reading. There's a book written by T. Boone Pickens. He's an oil guy, and he got famous yeah. buying these companies 10, 20 times the size of his and explained how he did it. How, how did you buy a company that much larger than your own? Well, it, it, was, it was interesting. I, I was, as I said, I hired these two gentlemen that had formerly been with HE Sargent. One was the uh, CFO and one was the COO. And so they were working for me and uh, at the time. And we were able to increase our 
our presence in the marketplace significantly because of these two gentlemen. And when this opportunity came up, it, it wasn't an easy thing. I, um, there were days when I, I'd be positive and I'd wake up in the morning positive this transaction would take place. And by eight o'clock, uh, the bonding company would call us and say, yeah, I don't think we can support you. <laughs> and without bonding, of course, you're out of business right? Yeah. In, the, in the construction world. Yeah. And then, you know, by 10 o'clock, I'd have a different conversation that seemed more promising. And it was, it was really a roller coaster. You know, it really was kind of like starting in business all over again in a way, because as you're learning, when you start in business, you basically, whatever you've got, you put it on the line. It's, you know, I'm all in. Everything goes in the middle of the table and it's, and it's a gamble. And so after 15 years after 13 years after having started sergeant and sergeant, I kind of went all in again. At this point in time, my brother, I had bought him out and he had started his own business. So I was kind of able to, to make decisions on my own and went to the bank and we they felt like we had a good business plan. And I, I felt like we did too. The people there knew us. I hadn't been gone so long that they didn't know me, most of the people. So we frankly just kind of sold it and it worked wow. uh, to the bank and the bonding company. And I think they just had a lot of confidence in, in our in our ability to manage and the fact that we we knew that business. Mm-hmm. So most people, it's, there's a weird situation. One day, the bonding company and the bonding agent called into our CEO, CFO's office, and they didn't realize they were leaving a message the whole time. And they were talking on the phone to each other, but leaving a message on his machine the whole time. And they're going, what do these cowboys think they're going to do? You know, how do these guys can't pull off a deal like this. So we knew then we had to find some different people to work with. <laughs> that is nuts. Uh, and, and, and they worked with us and, and it worked out. So. And you became the leader of that new company, Sergeant Corp? Yes. Yeah. And, and you've been, you've been, you know, at the helm ever since? Yeah. So our COO, Tim Folster, as, as he would say, there's no question that Herb owns the business, but there's also... No question that I run the business, and he's and he was very very he he bears much of the credit for keeping it together because I'd never run an organization that size. Yeah, and and Tim retired a couple of weeks ago, so so now I'm back in the driver's seat. Really, Tim was the one that took the operational control, and I I took more of the more of the looking ahead, you know, trying to talk about strategies and, and looking ahead and that sort of thing. Gotcha. Now, now you, you used to be the owner. You're not the owner anymore, right? Now, now it's an employee owned business. And and at what point did you think that that one, what is an employee owned business? Because it is unique in the construction world that there are a lot of employee owned businesses and, and you don't have that in a lot of other industries. So can you def- just define what an employee owned business is and what it means for your people? And then two, why did you decide to go in that direction? So an employee-owned business, employee stock ownership plan, or ESOP, is a federally regulated retirement plan, in effect, that basically an owner like I was can approach the company and say, hey, I've got a valuation of X for my business. Would you, company, and they actually set up a trust, would you trust like to buy my company? And then the employees all take, take a percentage of ownership in that. So it's it's a pretty complicated transaction and that's about as simple as I can make it. But in effect, all the employees became owners on May 1st, 2013. I had been the 100% owner until that point in time. So I, I kind of joke that on April 30th, I was the 
the only owner and everybody else was an employee. And the next day it was the other way around. I was the only employee <laughs> and everybody else was the owner. Important to note, we, we spent a lot of time rolling the ESOP notion out to our employees. We, yeah. we put on a, put on quite a, quite a program so they could understand because we wanted to make sure we managed their expectations. Like, okay, I'm an owner. What's that worth? Yeah. Am I worth $10 million now? I'm worth a million. And so we, I literally sat there, stood there in front of the employees. And I said, one thing I want to make clear is this is not some huge act of generosity by Herb Sargent. Mm. This is me saying to you, I will sell you my company for X and you'll pay me that over time. Mm. So because, because on day one, you have no equity in the company. If everything goes perfectly by the end of the year, the average value each of you will have in the company is $147. Okay. And and I saw some heads drop, you know. Yeah. But it's it's like if, it's like if you bought a million dollar apartment building and you borrowed a million dollars, you know, you have no equity up front. Yeah. So it's it's kind of the same thing. And then to so the reason why I did it, like as soon as we bought HE Sergeant, I was 42 years old at that time, and I have two wonderful children. And neither one of them have any interest in this business. And that's fine with me. They have different dreams, uh, pursuing different careers. And I knew that was going to be the case. And so I knew that I had to do something. I'm kind of the, the familial cul-de-sac in this business now. I'm, I'm the end of the sergeants. And, and that's great. So I started looking at ways to, to move the company into a situation where it could continue. And there's basically four four options. There's, you can sell outside like it happened in 1988. You can sell to in, employees inside, but they have to have a, a really a lot of capital yeah. to satisfy the bonding companies. Yep. You can close it down or you can do an ESOP. And so the ESOP really satisfied everything we wanted to do. It allowed the management to stay in place for a long time to, to really work on the transition plan, the management transition. And um, it it brought immediate benefit to employees. And so, what is that benefit today? You know, and one, how has it played out? Because now it's 2020, so it's been a few years with it in place, and and the dust has settled. And two, you know, if I join your company today as a truck driver, what does that actually mean for me? So I'll, I'll back up just a little bit. In 2012, I met with an ESOP attorney, and we had some really good years up until the recession came, say 2010, 11, 12. And we didn't lose money, but we weren't making much money. And this ESOP attorney said, uh, Herb, you need to wait five years and then do this, and you'll double your money if you wait. Mm. And I said, well, just you know, look at the flip chart and tell me what you think it's worth now. And I had George and Tim, my, my two, I, I call them partners at the time, with me. And he wrote a number on the flip chart, and I looked at him and I said, I don't need more money than that. I really don't. Yeah. I, I wouldn't feel right to take the run up and then sell it at the highest possible price. Hmm. So why don't we do this now and give the, give the employees the benefit of the run up. Mm, so, so if, yeah. so if you, uh, if you joined the company as let's say a foreman in 2013, right now you'd be fully vested in your, in your ESOP value. And that would probably be depending on your salary, and sometimes there's a lot of overtime involved. But your value today, after six or seven years, would be somewhere in the area of forty to sixty thousand dollars. That's incredible. That and that money would not so, exist otherwise. You know, it could. It, it yeah. plain. It it literally grew out of nowhere. Yeah. And that's in addition to 
we still, most ESOPs don't match 401ks. And I've, I've, all my career, I've been really, really aggressive on matching 401ks because I want people to come to work, work hard, and have a really respectful retirement when they're done. I mean, you know, you've seen, you've done the work, and you know how hard it is. And and for people to get to the end of a, of a career in this business and have nothing is just wrong. Yeah, well, and that's and the so, norm. I mean, a lot of companies yeah. don't have retirement plans. And so one thing we, we kept in place when we did the ESOP, most ESOPs don't match 401ks because they they reasoned that, well, this is their retirement that we're doing. We actually do both. We match 50 cents on the dollar up to 6% and and the ESOP benefit. So it's pretty significant. It's, if you take those two benefits together, they add up to about another 8 or 10% of, of a person's salary each year. That's incredible. Now, what... I mean, you, so you sold the business essentially, did that money change anything for you? I mean, what, what, did you wake up one day like, oh my God, wow, this is amazing. Or, I mean, was life pretty much the same the next day as it was the day prior? So the way, the way I sold the business is I held a note, I held a a balloon note Uh. and I was, my note was subordinate to the banks and the bonding companies because for the business to suddenly take on all that debt would, would in effect make it insolvent. Yep. So what I did is I took a long-term uh, 20-year balloon note. So I didn't really take any cash up front. Mm. And, uh, and so that allows the company to begin to build the equity up. And it gives the bank and the bonding company some, uh, some kind of runway behind them and in front of them so they can see the management and how it's going. In more recent years, the company has started to pay me off some. I, I can't say it's changed my life a lot. Yeah. I don't, I don't operate my life any differently, Yeah. but seeing an, an account begin to grow that, you know, I always hoped would, right. You always hope that, that now I know I can also be comfortable in, in retirement is, is a good thing. So, and, and it's been done in a way that it doesn't, we don't fleece the cash out of the business. You know, the, the, we've been profitable over the last several years. And, and so the, the cash in the business has grown. We also have to keep an eye on, on uh, you know the obligations we have to retiring employees because when employees retire, then of course we have to we have to redeem their shares. Mm. So we have to keep and there's a there's a lot of moving parts to this besides make sure Herb gets paid, okay. which is fine with me, you know. Well, and 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 a lot of people think that that's although well, that's an important aspect. Yeah, of, of <laughs> course. Yeah, yeah. You got to get your vacation somehow. No, I, I think a lot of right. people think that that's like most business owners objective is to just get a massive payday. And in reality, I mean, a lot of times it's just not that way, but that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. Now what, um, going, going back a little ways, you did not go to college, right? Well, I, I went to college and college asked me to leave. Okay. After the first semester. There yeah. You, there you go. So, so, so you yeah. did technically go to college. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now why, I mean, why did you not finish? So you went one, I guess, why did you initially go? And then two, how did you somewhat figure out that it just wasn't the path for you? Well, like, like most, uh, you know, high school seniors, I, I went because you're expected to, right. And, yeah. uh, kind of there you have it. I, I kind of had a little different idea what I wanted to do for college, but my dad had his idea mm. and, and he, his idea trumped mine. Mm-hmm. To me, I just I just didn't like it, you know. I just didn't like it, and I'd always worked 
Um, when I when I was turned 14, uh, I lived in Georgia at the time, but I'd come to Maine in the summer. And when I turned 14, I started working in the shop, and I just loved that. You know, I just loved being in the shop. I'd been around the shop since I was born, uh, but being able to work in there with these guys really was awesome for me. And then when I turned 16, started working in the field as a pipe layer in a, in a sewer trench, and just really enjoyed that. So I really just enjoyed the hands-on piece of the business. I, I also found it difficult to, to. so I guess in a way I, I thought this is what I'm going to do is be in this construction business. Yeah. And when I got to school, it seemed like, you know, everything they were teaching me was this doesn't apply to what I'm going to be doing. Yeah. And, and so I, you know, I spent a semester there and, and was, uh, as I said, it didn't return. What did and, your dad think about that? Well, he, he wasn't too happy. I think his <laughs> question was, I think his question to me was, I want to know what drugs you're doing and who you're buying them from. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> which, which really wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a drug thing. It was just, it, it was a total lack of interest, really. Yeah. Total yeah. lack of application. Yep. So, uh, you know, I went, I went back to, went back south, went to Georgia for, I uh, went to Florida for a few weeks with a bunch of buddies and, Got a job busting tables on Daytona Beach and uh, decided after the first three or four checks, I couldn't afford the three things that were that I needed in life, which was Budweiser, Chicken McNuggets, and rent. Mm-hmm. You know, so I went back to the construction business. I had the similar lack of, uh, of interest in college, but I was dumb enough to stay there for four years and finish. So... But, uh, well, congratulations to you for that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's one of the things I always say. I really respect the hell out of people that, that can maintain the interest because I just didn't have it. Oh, uh, it was a struggle. Uh, what, <laughs> you know, you're, you're in your fifties now and, and that was the path you led, you know, a few decades ago. What, what kind of advice do you have for kids that are in high school that they're sitting there? And I think, you know, I, I think the, the misconception is that you need to have everything figured out when you're 16 years old. And that's just, yeah. it's so far from the truth. And 99% of people don't have everything figured out, but yet they're taught that, or, you know, see on social media that, oh my God, you know, they have it figured out. Why don't I have it figured out? What's wrong with me? What, what kind of advice do you have for, for kids or even someone that's 30 just sitting there like, man, I just haven't really found it yet. Whatever it is. What, what kind of advice do you have for, for people that are somewhat confused as, as far as what their yeah. life purpose is? So. So first of all, I mean, I just knew what I wanted to do. And that was an unfair gift to me, right? Yeah. I, that was really unfair for me to have that gift at 14, 15, 16 years old. I'm the same I just way. knew what I wanted to do. Yep. And it and it it was something, you know, it was it was a business that I could just enter into and if I just worked hard and pay attention, I could at least make a good living. Yeah. And, you know, as opposed to, you know, another dream I had was be a major league baseball player, right? But my love for the game so far outran my ability that it, it, you know, there was no chance that it was going to ever going to happen. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's dreams, there's passions, there's all this stuff. And there's a lot of talk about following passions and, and, but I think, I think you have to, you know, passion is one thing, but reality is another and recognizing early on, you know, like as a sophomore in high school, I had no baseball talent, made it easy for me to, to give up that dream. Yeah. And, uh, so you have to, I think, align with reality to to a large degree. And I think one of the things that there's just so much pressure from society 
to have people make, you know, make your decision, make your decision. And there's a lot of things you can do in your life that you can learn about life while you're doing them that don't require college, doesn't require college debt. And, you know, construction is one of those things. So I would say, you know, first of all, come check out construction, come check out Supreme Corp. But also just keep keep things moving. I was reading uh, something not too long ago by James Clear, who wrote Atomic Habits. And, and he said, if you just keep moving, you increase your surface area for good luck. And I thought that was such an incredible way of putting it. So just keep moving, get into something, keep moving. If you don't like it, you can try something out. I completely if, if you want to go to if you want to go to college and you know what you want to do, then do it. I know people that have gone to college, gotten a degree, and they are like, that's not what I want to do. And and, and what happens is, is they, they hit this kind of quicksand after that point because they don't really know what to do next. Yeah. I just would encourage people to give give life a try. If, if you've got questions about what you want to do, give life a try in whatever thing you think you might like. Uh, but this business, you know, as you know, I've written, it's so much better than society thinks it is. Yeah. Working construction is so much better than society thinks it is. Why, why is that? So, well, I mean, why, how is it better? Well, I, I just think, you know, people see that we're dirty, filthy, and they think they must hate that, right? Yeah. And I can remember uh, one time years ago, I, I came home at the end of the day, and I had been working with a crew, and we replaced a, a sewer manhole in while live sewer was running through it, right? And I've been there. So we're all covered with yeah. live sewer. Yeah. And I get home, and, and my, my wife at the time said, uh, you're going to undress out here in the front yard. First, I think she hosed me off. <laughs> and, you know, I think people, when you go through something like people, like, how could you possibly enjoy that? Well, there's aspects I don't, right? I don't really enjoy someone else's fecal matter on me. That's I'll just make that clear. Yeah. But, you know, we, we accomplished something that day that had to be done. And, you know, at the end of the day, we all looked at each other with big grins on our face. Yeah. And, and we said, we got it done, you know, great. And that's something you don't get in a lot of businesses and a lot of, in a lot of jobs is that sense of, of, of reward at the end of the day for getting things done um, and the camaraderie. Uh, you know, when I was young in the business, I traveled a lot in the business and, uh, you know, I was on, I was on the road all the time and uh, usually spending time with guys, you know, I have a couple beers after work and then dinner. Uh, cooking stuff out on the grill, stuff like that. And some of the some of the smartest people I know, and when I say smartest, some of the most intellectually bright people I know, I remember one guy who literally couldn't read and write. But when you listen to him talk and you know, you heard his wit, you just know that this guy was bright. Mm-hmm. And I just love being around people like that. Yeah. Well, there's different levels of intelligence and different kinds of intelligence. And I and, and sure. go, going back to the fecal matter thing, there's there's pride, um, immense pride in doing things that, you know, other people aren't willing to do too. It's like, you know, it's yeah. not even an ego or arrogance thing. It's just like, a, I know most everyone I know would not be willing to do this. And here I am making it happen for everyone else. And, and that creates just so much pride that you can't find in a lot of other places. So I, I guess the, 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 then the question becomes, if this industry is great, you know, you, you've loved it. Everyone else that I've met, you know, largely has, has loved it. And, and a common thing that I hear is you have to love it or else this industry is just going to kick your ass. 
why yeah. like you, you, your recent article about, you know, how you guys canvassed high schools and, and had this amazing, amazing event planned and, and no one, no high schoolers showed up. What, what's the disconnect there? Well, and I, I think in that article, I said, I'll admittedly paint with a broad brush, but yeah, most guidance counselors don't take a lot of time with kids that aren't going to college. Yeah. They just kind of, I, th- I think they go, well, they'll find their way somehow. And so, you know, going to see guidance counselors and, and saying, I've got an opportunity for folks, you know, and they don't have to go to college and, and the, the monies will be good. Uh, it, it just, they, they just, they just can't get jazzed up over that. And again, it's, I think it's that they must believe, how can that be enjoyable? You know, we, we don't see how that can be enjoyable. And, and that's the big secret, right? That's our industry's big secret that, you know, that you're helping to expose and guys like Mike Rowe are out there. The big secret that we've kept for way too long is this this business kicks you in the balls about every single day. Yep. It it really does. And but also every single day there's so much to cheer about. And so, you know, when when you net it all out, it's it's really a an incredibly fascinating, personable type of business to be in that you just you look at each other at the beginning of the day and, and you say, how are we going to do this? And and sometimes you look and everybody looks at each other and you're like, well, we're not sure, but let's get started. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, you got something done. Trying to overcome that with uh, with guidance counselors, you know, and I, and I went on further in that article to, to describe where we're meeting now with, with high school tech instructors who, generally speaking, have have a bigger heart for our business. But even they were kind of like, well, this isn't year-round work. Yeah. And so yeah. everybody's looking for the downside on this. And, I, you know, I challenge the guys, well, you're not year-round work. What, yeah, they're teachers. I don't – yeah. You get the summers off, they get the winters off. But yeah. They ice fish. You know, you, you go fishing, they ice fish. Yep. Or they go downhill skiing or whatever. They can find another job in the winter. There's just so much to overcome, you know, and that that's frankly one of the reasons when I – when I saw a lot of the work that, that you and, and your company does, that's what attracted me to, to have you guys work, work with us because we need to do better as a company, even though I think we do a lot more than a lot of companies, we need to do a lot better about it. Yeah. And, well, uh, you know, we're looking to crank our game up. Well, I mean, what you guys are doing is amazing. So I'm excited to get the word out about it. And and the funny thing is, you know, they, they look at us, the construction industry, blue collar world in general, and, and look at it like, I, that's crazy. Who would want to do that? That can't be fun. Right. But then, but then guys like you, if I go put you in a law office, you know, Hey Herb, now you're going to be a lawyer. You'd go insane. And I, I know I would, my dad's a lawyer and I tell him and his, his only advice for me, I was very, very lucky with, he did not make me do anything as, but, but his only rule was do not go to law school because he knew I would just go insane <laughs> And I tell him, I'd like, I'd, I'd hate what you do because there's just, there's no way it doesn't mesh with my personality whatsoever. So it goes both ways. I think society thinks it's only that one way, but, but for the people in the industry, we're looking at them like they're crazy for doing what they do. Well, one thing about this business that I, I think is overlooked often is even though most of what we build is designed and paid for by somebody else, we get to be really, really creative about the way we do it. Yeah. And when I say that, I, I was just talking this morning to a workforce advancement director 
and about, you know, some training we're going to have in a week or two. And I said, we need, we really need to hit on the creativity because I, I want our guys to know we want you to be creative. We want you to think. We want you to be, we want you to take initiative. We want you to bring value to, to each other and to all of, all the people that hire us. And th- there's just so much room for creativity in this business. Uh, in how we, not necessarily what we do, but how we do it. And just such minor tweaks that if we can find those things, and when you find those, man, the, the reward that you feel inside. And, you know, especially for me now, in a way, I, I, I wonder how I ever ran a company that was not employee owned, mm-hmm. you know, where like Herb got all the benefit. Yeah. I didn't get it all because I was, I was always very, very generous uh, to, to share. But, especially now, you know, when, when I see people in our crew go, Hey, we could make this little tweak and this would mean this. And I just go, see, you guys get it now. Yeah. You you guys get it. And that's making a difference in your future. Well, and it's one of the only industries where you just get the end product and, and, and say, you know, you get the set of plans. Okay. This is what we need. You figure it out. I mean, in that, right. it, it, it really is amazing because then the estimator has to sit there. All right. How do we phase this thing? What are the materials we need? What are the quantities? And then the project manager, okay, how do I arrange all this? And then the operators are, well, you know, here's our workflow here. And it's, and then, oh, this external, oh, oh, now there's this water line in our way. How do we change? I mean, it's just, it's constant creativity, problem solving. Every day is different. I, I mean, that's probably one of the number one top three benefits I hear cited from everyone I ask is yeah. that it, creativity. And you get to work together. Yes. And, and, and then you that's. You get to collaborate on it. Exactly. And that's the other one. The other one of the top three is the, the teamwork, the people, the collaboration. That, and, and, and in a really intimate sense. I mean, I just made a post about this yesterday about these guys that. They, they worked hard paving a, a county road all, all morning. It was hot. It was, they were working their asses off with shovels and, you know, it's, it's asphalt paving. It's not glamorous. And one guy cooked for him on the side of the road in an old tractor disc. It was with a propane tank. It was the most unbelievable tacos I've ever had in my life. Cooked for the whole yeah. crew. They're sitting there joking around and, and it's like they're, it's like Thanksgiving dinner almost that, that sense and, and, and emotion and, and feeling to it. And you just, you sit there, you're like, you just don't see this in the rest of society, this, this sense of intimacy between a group of people working together. And, and in, in, you know, in our company, and a lot of companies are, are spread out some, you know, we, we've got folks, we, by the way, just to correct you, we don't go to the West Coast, we're mostly East Coast, but we've got folks in Virginia, you know, who, what they're doing has an impact on folks in, in Northern Maine or Eastern Maine, right? It, yeah. And it's, it, it's kind of the, the rising tide floats all boats and we don't do as good a job as we should trying to connect those people. We're still working on a lot of different things like that, but, um, but, but those, we encourage our, our supervisors to look when, when you hit a milestone, feed the crew. Yeah. You know, whether it's pizza, I mean, I'd like you guys did or like you witnessed yesterday. Let's cook some steak. So let's cook some chicken. Let's cook some. Once in a while, we get a job near the coast, and and somebody says, uh, "We'll sell you lobsters really cheap." And, Unreal. And so we have you know a, a big batch of lobsters for the crew. But those are the kinds of things where people stand around, you know, and it it's almost like the locker room after a 
you know, a, a football game that you won or a basketball game and people stand around and go, you know, Hey, that was pretty cool. What you did over there today. Yeah. You know, well, I couldn't have done it without, you know, the blocking and tackling. Yep. And so those kind of conversations really happen. And that's when you know, you know, that you're in the right place. Now go, going to, I, I, I want to capitalize on your, your experience here. Cause you're, I mean, you're, you're in your fifties, but I feel like your mentality is, is it's like you're 20 something with these younger owners that we work with. How, how is the industry different than when you began? How have things changed beyond the obvious things? I mean, how, how is the mentality different? The people, what, what is different about the industry today or what is changing about the industry today that, that was, was different from when you first started? So, you know, when I first started, fax machines came in vogue, yeah. right? That was in, in the early eighties. Yep. In fact, I can remember seeing the first one in the office, like, what's it, is it going to eat me? What's, what is this thing? Anyways, <laughs> it just spits out this big, long roll of paper. And, uh, and I don't even know so, what a fax machine you know, is. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about it in the other direction. Here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I'll fax you the information on it. Oh, perfect. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously the whole digital world has, has changed a lot. I can remember when the whole office that I was in had one PC and we all had to take turns on it. So that, that's obviously changed a lot. A lot of things that a lot of other things that have changed is the speed that things, as a result of that, the speed that things take place and people want information is, it's just never in, it's, it's exponentially faster. And to try to keep up with all the changes, so for instance, design changes on a project, to try to keep up with all that, you know, and you might get one every day for a week, you know, the same job, the five different changes every day for a week and hey, price this, hey, price that, hey, price this. So, so that's a big thing and trying to keep project managers and estimators so that they can really do the due diligence and sort out the opportunities and the risks and the work is, is really difficult. Mm. And another thing that we see is the, my design friends won't like me saying this, but frankly, it's true. It feels like the design communities rush more than we are. Mm. It's the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we'll get a job for, for let's say Newport, Maine, and as we dig into the specs, it references Castine, Maine in six different places because they took another spec book and, you know, kind of cut and pasted. So we, we see a lot of that. Funding on on work is, is different. When I started in business at Sergeant and Sergeant in 1992, I, I spent the first two months trying to figure out how to, how to get a job. And on I bid, and it was a really bad economy. It was terrible. Not as bad as 0910, but it was pretty pretty darn close. There was just not much out there to bid on. Mm -hmm. And the, the next thing that came up was a Walmart job. And this was before Walmart, you know, so again, I'm dating myself. This is before Walmart was in, in every town. <laughs> and I decided, well, you know, here I am alone. I've got a PC in my, in my desk at the house. I'm going to bid this Walmart job. And so there was a lot of commercial work going on at the time that is no longer happening. You know, the, the whole Amazon phenomena is, is kind of done away with any commercial work to speak of. So I did I did end up getting that job, by the way, that Walmart job and trying to go from a standing start with a PC, to, you know, building a, a Walmart site was a little bit of a challenge. <laughs> but, 
So I, I think the, the work mix has changed a lot too. Yeah. Um, it, it, where we are, there's not a lot of residential, you know, big residential work. Like there are in a lot of places that you likely visit. Yep. Uh, you know, we, we don't have 300 acre tracks that are being developed in the housing. You might have a, you know, a 20 lot subdivision here and another 20 lot there. We've been relying on a lot of different things. Wind power work has been a big thing for us. So the type of work has changed. Uh, that we do. And then, you know, the, in some ways, the equipment has changed a lot too. Of course, you know, the advent of GPS on equipment, machine control, that sort of thing has changed. And, and what we're, you know, so we got all these changes. And the one thing we're trying not to change, the way we value the business, you know, the way we approach it. What do you mean by that? Well, if I, I guess the way we looked at it, when we bought HE Sargent in 2005, I got the management group together and I said, let's, okay, we, we, I only got one opportunity to get this right. Cause if this, if this doesn't go right, I'm broke. Yeah. I mean, I'm literally broke. So we got everybody together. I didn't tell everybody I thought that, but I knew it was the case. Yeah. Well, I can um, relate there. He said, we, we've changed, you know, my grandfather Herb started with a dump truck and a steam shovel in 1926. You know, one of those types of stories. And over the years, he built dams and he built airports and then he built highways. The interstate came in in the 70s and he started using scrapers. And, you know, so the shovels were gone, the scrapers were in. And then the 80s came on. There's a lot of environmental work and commercial work. And the hydraulic excavator came on uh, and the scrapers kind of went away, at least in Maine. Um, and then, you know, the really big commercial work came on in, in the 90s and 2000s. And uh, then GPS came in. So if you look at what Herb did back in 1926 compared to what he what we do now, barely even all there is is like ground engaging tools are present in both. And that's yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> but so so I implored our folks. Okay, everything is different, but what's the same? Uh. What's the same over at the time, uh, 80 years? What has been the same over the time? And it really was the values. Mm. They were the same over that 80 years. And, you know, if, if you're a surveyor and you're occupying a point and you want to, and you want to run a line, you, you really want a good backside, you know, to, to flip back to, to then begin to run your lines. And, you know, when your backside is yours is, is a year or two, you know, you, in the surveying world, you don't have as much accuracy if your backside is say, you know, five feet away. Yeah. But if it's, you know, if it's 500 feet away, you've got a lot more accuracy. And I just felt like if we can, if we can uh, nail down what those values are, that gives us really a, like a, a surveyor's dream of a backsight on how to go forward. Why, why is that? So this is, this is the perfect segue. I think, and over the past, I, I've kind of figured this out in the past six months or so. I think one of the fundamental, fundamental problems of the construction industry is we've lost sight of the why and we've lost sight of values and and why we do what we do and we're helping a lot of companies right now establish that why and those values for their companies why why is outlining those values important and i've done this in my own business we just talked about it. i've spent the past year spent i mean I've, I've spent a lot of time on our values and it's really cool seeing them actually take hold within our company now now that we have quite a few folks running around but why, why was that so important yeah. for you to establish those? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, 
I never was a big guy to say we need to codify the values. Yeah. Um, you know, back in 2005, I said, you know, what has been the same? And we, this was all on a flip chart and I'm in the front of the room and people are rattling off things. And I'm, you know, and it was basically, uh, we want to work like we can work on a handshake. Uh, we don't want to, we don't want to dignify a mistake by making another mistake on top of it. Mm-hmm. Those sorts of things. Um, when we started to, to look at really the management succession of, of our, of our management, and I'm talking about me and our COO who, who, uh, Tim, who retired a couple of weeks ago, uh, and this goes back, you know, a couple of years ago. One of the things we said is, you know, I guess it's time to codify this for, for ourselves. And so that, you know, when, when people in the field are in a, are in a kind of a knobby spot and a difficult spot and they got to make a decision, it's, it's kind of like a screening process. Uh, you know, let's drop this decision on top of this, this purpose and values and, and let it tumble down through. And hopefully that at least gives them the philosophy to make yeah. the make the decision with. Yep. And the other thing is we, we brought in uh, like a, a cross section of the company. Some guys, a couple guys had only been with us just a few months. And, uh, and some had been with us for, 40, you know, Tim and me uh, had been with the company for 40 years almost. And, and it was really an opportunity. I, I can't tell you, and they don't, and they rave about it all the time. These younger guys that had a, an opportunity to come in, and we took probably eight sessions over the course of about four months and a half a day apiece to really come down with our purpose and values and, and get it worded the way we wanted it. Mm. Um, but the growth that these folks, especially the younger folks, experienced in looking at the business from above rather than being in it all the time. You know, it's so. You know, if you ever saw the movie The Truman Show with uh, Jim Carrey, where he's in this basically a fake world, and it's like they're in this fake world they can't really see from up above. And and going through this process was as was as good for them as it was good to have these values on paper. Mm. Um, and and I think for them to see what our real commitment was. Um, so so we tried to make them simple. We tried to make them organic and ours. And, you know, we avoided some catchwords, uh, you know, as you, you posted on uh, LinkedIn recently, yeah. you know, you don't think integrity should be in there. And, and um, we, we, we debated that in house. And that was another good thing about, we had a lot of good debates uh. you know, and a lot of, you know, the way I wrote about it one time is, is our voices raised, but our thinking raised further, mm. you know, and just, about what the company really means. And uh, so it, it's it's a document we're really proud of. And, uh, you know, we think it's got some pretty simple concepts that anyone can can just readily understand. Has it, has it changed the business having that in writing for everyone to see? I can't say that it has just yet. Yeah. Um, so we've got, a, I mean, we're, we're introducing a lot of changes in our business, you know, I mean, it, it seems like, well, seven years ago was the ESOP, but that ESOP thing takes a while to actually get get traction because the first four years, their value is so low. It's like, I, I can't even see what this is going to be. Yeah. Last two or three years, it's been a little bit more, but, you know, then we, we were layering on a lot like this, 
this purpose and values. And I really believe that all our people uh, kind of feel the, the same way this is written, you know, yeah. or people tend to self-select out if, you know, if their values aren't the same. Yep. It's not often we have to say, you don't fit. Yep. Usually they self-select out. Um, but we're continuing to to talk about it. We've got a week-long meeting with our foreman and superintendents. A week starts a week from Monday, and I've been working really hard uh, with with our management team to put together a real meaningful slate of training and and trying to refer it all back to this purpose and values as much as we can, and 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 educate these folks to the point where, you know, they understand that whatever they do affects not only their, you know, their daily production, but it actually, you know, what they turn on, uh, turn in on their time card is a component of the financial statement Mm -hmm. and the balance sheet. Yep. And I don't, I don't think people really understand that in in a general sense. So we're really trying to, to get that education down. So managing at the lowest possible level and, uh, and really working with that. So I think when we, as we continue to talk about it, I think it'll begin to get more traction. Well, I, sometimes these things can be just, Oh, here's management trotting out another fancy piece of paper. I wonder what this says. Oh yeah. Well, and I feel, um, you know, management and, and owners often say, Oh, you know, they just don't get it. And, and then your, 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 your follow up question is, well, have you taken the time to actually educate them on this and right. explain this and, and really make it their own? And the answer is always no. Um, so it's, it's, it's cool to see you guys actually taking the time to instill these, these values and, and, you know, share about the financial information, and all that. Now going into, um, training here, it wouldn't be a conversation with Herb Sargent without talking about the Sergeant Academy, what, and, and, and recruiting and all of that, how are you guys, well, let's hold on. Let's first talk about bringing people in versus poaching because then that'll lead us to the Sergeant Academy. What okay. can you explain yeah. your thoughts on? Because we just had a long conversation about this before. It's what's happening in the industry right now is everyone's poaching everybody and no one's creating anything new, right? How do you view poaching and how do you view people bringing, how do you view bringing people into the industry? So all poaching does is slow the industry down. Agreed. Right. Yep. So my guy goes to the next guy and it takes him six months to become proficient at whatever that next guy wants him to do. Yeah. If I poach the next guys, he's going to be six months. And if we poach 10 guys, uh, you know, or they poach 10 guys for me, it's all it does is slow the industry down. Yeah. Now bringing in brand new people doesn't necessarily accelerate the industry either, but at least, you know, I, I just, my feeling is I'm responsible for my own company. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, nobody owes me anything. Yeah. So I, I ought to get, I ought to go work for what I get. And so to me, bringing people in, in into the industry is not, it's a responsibility I have. Mm-hmm. And if you ask me, it's a responsibility everyone has. And so we looked at it before we needed people. We, we started looking at it this way. So for us, 2011, 12, 13, 14, we had plenty of people. We didn't need people. 
and even 15 was, we didn't really need a lot of people, you know, more than what we already had. But it seemed like, you know, we, I've got guys that are a lot of folks that are getting retirement age. And I, you know, I'm looking at, okay, we don't, we don't really have a lot of people to replace these guys. Mm. And I, I don't need to go chisel or I don't need to go hire a hundred people a year and not care what I get. I need to go chisel 10 or 15 or 20 supermen, superwomen, super folks out of the, out of the landscape yeah. and bring them in and tell them how we do things and tell them if you come and you stay, when you, when you decide to retire, there's going to be a big something there for you. Mm. So we just feel like when people are poached across and around the industry, it slows the industry down forever. Yeah. Right. There, there's no, there, there's no stem to the tide on it. Whereas if we just bring people in, we might get slowed down because they're inexperienced, but in five years, look out. And, and we don't have to rely on hoping the other guy, the other company is training their people the way I want them. <laughs> that is right? a funny thought. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I want to train them the way I want them. Yep. And, you know, I don't want Joe Dirk company over here, uh, you know, and all of a sudden their guy comes to me and, and I'm hiring a guy with a lot of bad habits. That's not to say that we won't hire people, you know, who have been in the industry for a while, but we just flat will not, you know, I, I'm aware of people, my employees, whom other companies have sat in their driveway. You know, they drove in into their house at the end of the day and then, hey, you know, I want you to come to work for me and we'll give you this, we'll give you that. Every once in a while we lose somebody like that, usually not. But you're you're so, practicing what you're preaching too, because I feel like it's very popular to say, well, I want to train them how I want them. But then they, that, that, that company saying that has no training program. <laughs> and, and so their training is just kind of random. And that's why they get all the bad habits because they haven't actually had legitimate training before. How are you training these people and, and giving them tactical skills that they can employ on job sites? Yeah. So we, uh, in 2015, as I said, we were still, we were, we were kind of netted where we needed to be on employees, but I could see, a spate of retirements coming up over the next five to 10 years. Yeah. And so, so we sat down, but you know, we, we've got to do something about this. And again, we're not looking for a hundred people, but over the next 10 to 15 years, we're looking for a couple hundred people. Yep. So we don't need, we don't need to just to go, you know, it's not like a big drag net. We want to be really strategic about who we get and, and that they come and there are type of people and they don't mind working as hard as we work and all that sort of stuff. So, so you know, we came up with the idea of the Sergeant Construction Academy. And uh, I'll give it a quick pitch here, if you don't mind. It's a, Please. It started out as a, as a six-week paid program. So our what we did is we said we want immediate high school grads. So mm-hmm. our program starts like the day after high school gets the day after graduation. And we have uh, three trainers. Uh, that work with these guys. We get about 12 to 15 kids in each year and we put them up at a local college in a dormitory because the first thing we want to do is get them away from mom and dad. Yep. We want them to learn how to be on their own. Mm-hmm. So we set them up at a local college in a dorm and they eat at the commons. They get breakfast. They get lunch packed for them. We have a bus pick them up. They bring them to our office. They work 10 to 12 hours. We really try to uh, synthesize what they're going to see in the field. So, you know, once or twice during this program, all of a sudden we'll quote unquote hit a water line and we'll <laughs> have to stay out till seven, eight o'clock that night, 
you know, working on things. No kidding. So the, the yeah, the foot, well, we don't actually hit a water line, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, know, we just yeah. like, we're going to put you guys through the real thing. Wow. And, and, and the trainers that I have, Kevin Gordon is our workforce, workforce advancement uh, director. And he's, I've known him for close to 40 years now. We worked together. We labored together. We were foreman together. We were supervisors together. And uh, he came to work for me in 1992 and, and just an incredible manager. But I went to him in 2016 and said, I want you to take a whole different role. I want you to be workforce workforce advancement. And he looked at me and he said, can you think of somebody else that can do this? And I said, well, if you can tell me somebody that would be better, I'll hire him to do it instead. Mm. And he said, there isn't anybody better. I'm the right person. Mm. So, I mean, he really really took a sideways move, but he's also a teacher and he knows the business. He's really kicking ass with these guys. Our retention rate is pretty good, I think. From 2016 to 2019, I think we're averaging about 50% retention, which, I mean, compared to the other people we hire, that's very high. Yeah. It's not an inexpensive thing. We found that the first year we did it, it cost us about 12000 bucks a person. Wow. To put them through, you know, because we pay them. Yeah. And we pay to put them up, you know, so there's a lot of costs involved. We've changed it a little bit. Our CFO, Tasha Gardner, came to me last year. And she said, what if we shorten this to four weeks? Because always in the summertime, the jobs can't wait to get these these guys on the jobs. And instead of having them laid off all winter, we bring them in for two weeks of training during the winter. Mm. And, you know, so I can't tell you how much this woman adds to, to the way we look at things and think about things. So we we actually just did that for the first time this year. We brought in the last two classes for a week or two of training this winter. So it's another week, two less layoffs that they have, but we got two weeks of production out of them. So you'll, you'll train uh, so them. We, will you hire them after? Well, we, you know, we bring them on. They, they're employees the first day they start. Oh, wow. So we bring them on and we, in fact, we say, you can come do this, but you've got to guarantee us you'll stay six months. So we, we put them through it and then they stay for six months. Occasionally we have somebody that doesn't stay if you don't make it, you know, and, and our idea is, you know, you're going to be laborers. We're going to give them some, some exposure to equipment or you're going to be laborers. But the future of our company is these guys, some of them will be foremen in, in 10 to 15 years. Some will be foremen. Some will be superintendents. Some will be truck drivers. Some will be operators. So we're looking to populate all the ranks wow. of the company with these guys. And Kevin and, and John Milligan and, uh, Ken Thurlow are the, are the instructors, and they just they just know how to talk to these guys. They just know how to do it. And one of the thing one of the things I'm the most proud of is the first thing we expose them to is a 401k. Mm. And so we tell them if you, so we simulate it's six weeks, thirty days. We say well, this is going to simulate a career. Every day is a year in your career. So every day, if you put in three dollars and fifty cents, we'll match it with a dollar and seventy five cents. Okay. So it's, you know, simulating and every night we'll grow at 6%, wow. like 6% in a year. Yeah. And so one of our instructors starts right in the first day and he's, he's in it too, right? And he goes, I'll do 350 a day. And the other instructor, Kevin usually says, Hey, you know, I want to buy a four wheeler. I want to buy a snowmobile. I want to buy a boat. Yeah. I'm not going to put my money away like that. Yeah. So for the first 15 days, he doesn't, but the other instructor does. 
And then after 15 days, the instructor who starts out says, you know, I got to put kids in college, so I'm going to stop putting in. But Kevin says, holy cow, you know, I'm halfway through my career. I better get caught up. So he starts putting in. Yeah. And at the end of the 30 days, when you factor in the compound and everything else, yep. even though Kevin and John have, have put in the same amount of money, yep. John has three times more. Yep. That's compounding for you. So you're, you're and, not just creating good employees with this. You're educating them to live better lives in general. We want good humans. Yeah. We want, we want good humans that enjoy a good human respect, respectful life, dignity when they retire, dignity while they're working. Yeah. And it, it's really crazy because when these kids get done, some of them don't put in the 350 a day, right? Some put a dollar in, yeah. whatever. And we don't tell them this up front, but at the end, and literally they got a, a jar full of cash, a big mason jar. And the last day we go, okay, whatever's in that jar is yours. Huh. And, you know, there's a kid that goes, holy cow, I just counted this out and I got 480 bucks. Yeah. And another one goes, I only got 160. There you and go. And it's just a huge lesson for them to understand that get started now on your 401k and you're saving. That's incredible. I And, and that's, yeah, that, that is amazing. Now, the success of these, I mean, where do you find these kids? I mean, and, and, and then how can someone apply for this program? So we, we do a lot of work. We've, we've done a lot of presentations with the tech schools in Maine, and, and we're trying to spread into New Hampshire. Actually, we're in the tech schools in Virginia also. Yeah. And uh, we've, we've gotten some great uh, great employees out of that school in, in Goochland County, Virginia. Wow. Um, so, so we go and do presentations with, with the tech school leaders. And, uh, you know, it's like, listen, if you've got kids that just want to be outside, and they just want to earn a living and, you know, they get a sense of achievement. These are the people we need. Yeah. And we will take care of them. And, and as I wrote in that article, you know, we've got guys that are, that have been around longer that never went to college that are, that are well above six figures and, and some that, you know, that are three or four years into this that are in the 50, 60, $70,000 range. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're doing pretty well for themselves and they've got already some of them have, you know, twenty thirty thousand dollars in a 401k and 21 years old. That's amazing. Wow. And, and, and so, you know, we ask them, send the kids to us and they usually will send the ones, these tech directors and, and instructors, we usually only send the one they think that, you know, will work. So we thought at one point in time, when we rolled this out, we'd get 200 applications. We didn't. We got like thirty. Yeah. So we weren't we, we weren't able to be as choosy as we wanted to be, frankly, first couple of seasons. But we've changed our expectations some, and we've gotten better. We've we've been we've gotten better at outlining our expectations to the people who come in. Kevin has done a, just an incredible job uh, with this thing. And he fought, after we you know six weeks, then they go out in the field, and Kevin follows them out in the field. He'll spend you know the next six or eight months working with our younger foreman, uh, our trainee foreman, and then these academy kids to, uh, to make sure that they're being mentored the right way and, uh, you know, not being lost. Cause it's easy to get, easy to get lost in this business too. So anyone can technically apply. You don't have to be at a technical school to apply. You just have to be graduating from high school. No. Right. So that's, we've kind of drawn the line that you have to be a, a high school grad. Okay. And, and the reason for that is we're trying to, these kids are 18 years old, right? And we've had some people that are in the 20s want to come. And we're just a little bit concerned about the influence the 
21 pluses could have on our 18s. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I say that only because I was 18 and lived through the, the influence of the 21 pluses. Yeah, we've all been there. Um, yep. Okay. So, so and, and they apply online. I want to try to give you a plug. Yeah, they can apply Maybe online or, or, yeah, they can apply online. Excellent. Okay. Well, uh, well, Herb, we're, uh, we're over an hour here. I don't want to take up too much of your time. This has been a damn good conversation. I'm very, very, very excited about it. You guys are doing some pretty amazing stuff and we're really thrilled to start working with you guys pretty soon here. Once the weather gets a little bit better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we sell lobster here in January and February too, you know, oh, but, man. Uh, I can't wait for some lobster. Uh, <laughs> we'll get you up here in July and August when it's a little bit more, uh, a bit more bearable. Perfect. But, uh, so look, you know, the work you're doing, Aaron and, and your crew and the presence you guys have, have built, uh, online in, in a relatively short period of time is is really spectacular. So you know you guys are all to be uh, applauded for for that, and you know in what you're doing to try to give us a better face than than we you know <laughs> currently enjoy. Well, in our business, you're going to make it easy for us. That's for sure. So we'll we'll have fun with you guys, and I'm looking forward to some lobster. All right. All right, Herb. Well, I appreciate it again, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk soon. All right. Take care. Thanks. See you.